0: body, right, Uh, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, uh, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine um, by trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And this is the part I really want you to zero in uh, on and just kind of really just kind of drag this and, and listen but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things in him who is the head, Christ, for uh, excuse me, from whom the whole body joined and knit together uh, with what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, uh, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I've always been um, impacted by the Bible's own baked in illustrations and analogies and there's just one when it comes to us as the church both locally and globally uh both historically uh and even contemporarily right regardless of how far you zoom out uh the bible has this enduring illustration of itself as a body and i'll be honest that when i think about the body the way that we use it at gospel hope oftentimes when we're in one of our like our our, um, new members orientations we're talking about the body as kind of a, a push or a pitch for people to get involved, to connect themselves locally and to serve because we think about the body in our local context. Right. Uh, but I just want to um, just kind of share a couple of things that have been incredibly encouraging uh, for me, as I called it, life giving on the front end. So it's not just stuff that makes me smi- smile, but stuff that really just blesses my heart and causes me to grow as every part of the body does its part and it edifies itself. So I don't know if you uh, you're smart people, you're wonderful people, you're beautiful people, you're people who love Jesus. So, of course, you felt this before. But I just want to share as an outsider, because I feel like feedback from the outside is so vital, because, again, we are fish swimming in water and we don't know that we're in that water until you know we get out. And so I'm just kind of like a new fish in y'all's pond. And we'll just kind of share some some things that I've enjoyed. Uh, number one, there's not been a, a moment where someone has not been actively loving me. And it's been and it's been wonderful. I, I've really enjoyed that. Um, I have experienced um, just these various hues of like fellowship and uh, never felt out of place. You know what I mean? Um, I may have been the only one or one of a few of my type in a given room. And it wasn't even part of it wasn't even didn't even register in my mind. Whereas if I was on my job or if I was at work or something like that, I walk to a conference like, "Oh, I'm the only black dude." You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or I'm the, oh, I'm the only guy from Atlanta, right? When my accent gives me away. But here in the Body of Christ, I can be honest with you. I can walk into any room. There's people whose names I do not know or do not remember, regardless of the times you told them to me or I've never met, and I did not feel foreign from you or to you. And, and that's just a, the, a beautiful. What was in that turkey bacon? <laughs> you tricked me. <laughs> uh, uh, let's pray before I mess up my makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, awesome time. So. Um, Brentford, you are, you are, the Lord is doing something beautiful through you and in you that makes a wonderful contribution to not just your local fellowship, but also the body at large. So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we thank you and praise you this morning for the beauty of what you have built, the beauty of what you have built. You called it a body, not because it was catchy or cliche, but you called it that because it's exactly what you intended, Lord God, that the, the hands are not feet and the feet are not knees and the legs are not arms and none of them have reason to be jealous of the other because each makes just as much of a valid contribution to the beautiful whole, Heavenly Father. It's the body. And we thank you, O oh God, that above all things that your son, Jesus Christ, is the head of that body giving us life giving us vitality giving us direction and we thank you for that we pray oh god that um in keeping with the scriptures that in that body you gave gifts to men lord god that we would make a deposit we would make a contribution to the body that allows us to come together lord god to grow up in the knowledge of you to grow up in unity to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But, Lord God, the actual exercise that we're about to enter into, you ordain that the people of your the, your people would be bound together and protected by truth in such a way, oh God, that that the adversary who's lurking on the edges and the periphery of the flock and even may have planted some among, Lord God, the flock that lead people astray. You, oh God, give gifts, Lord God, that that wouldn't happen. You built in this beautiful insurance policy, you've, you've given us, Lord God, the empowerment and the anointing to do all these things that, Lord God, you might be glorified in the way that the body comes together. And so um, we thank you for that. And so we just ask, Lord oh God, that you would meet with us in the time of our uh, taking of a text in the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I am going to be taking a look at one of the uh, additional imperatives. This is going to come specifically from the book of Romans and also the book of First Peter. Uh, we talked about uh, teaching as one of the imperatives. We talked about wrestling because there is a spiritual work uh, that is underway when it comes to witnessing that we need to be fully aware of. And that spiritual work should not frighten us, but it should give us great confidence that what God wants to do in disciple making is not just some solo activity. You're not out there alone and you're also not out there alone as a church. I want to encourage you. Uh, we, too, as Gospel Hope are. Um, You know, we have a Facebook page and we have Instagram and we have Google and I'm driving people to do Google reviews. And all those things are great tools that the Lord would use. But I want you to know that in all of that marketing exercise and those activities, they are tools that the Lord would use for us. Don't be afraid of any of them. Don't be offended by any of them. But let's not depend on any of them. Right. The coming of people to this place will happen because you are loving on one another and the body will grow because it's edifying itself in love. The very stuff that brought me to tears. Is the very stuff that will cause your context to grow. Uh, whether you are a—I don't know if this is a ring finger, a kneecap—I don't know what you are—a sternum, a clavicle—I don't know what you are in the grand scheme of the body of Christ. But do not envy any other segment of the body. Feel no sense of necessity to be like anyone else. Should we transfer best practices? Amen. But uh, let there be no pressure upon you to try to become like another place, because this is who the Lord has made you. And your contribution to the body is indeed valid. And what makes it valid is the fact that you are connected to the head, not because you're uh, it's, it's it's super shiny and new and glamorous. And I say that coming from a shiny church, a church that is very attractional, that desperately desires to be missional. Have you heard the diff- Have you heard this? So attractional means that like it's the it's the kind of place that when you pass by, there is a banner out front that is beautifully crafted and a, waving flags. that says do not pass by. Right. And you see, each one of the like, "Man, you're compelled to go in there and see what we're doing. And the only thing we don't have is one of those inflatable things that do like this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we don't have that yet. But now that I think about it, next, you, I think we're going to get one. Um, but. Well, you know, as a as a new church plant, man, we've got a lot of the, the 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 wonderful features and and technologies and stuff like that. You walk in, and everybody got a sexy MacBook, and you know, and all this kind of stuff, man. Whatever, uh, we're 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 attractional, and we're 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 thankful for the season that God has us in. Um, but and and you guys are attractional too, but you're also missional. And every church should strive for a balance of being both attractional and missional. So attractional is there's just certain things that people see from the street. And they say, I like that. I want to be a part of that. But missional is there's a certain amount of traction that you have because there is this collection of lives that are doing God's work. And people are coming to know the Lord. Uh, I, I continue to be impressed by the fact that almost in every conversation I'm finding out about people who are coming to know Christ, either here or because of people here. That is missional. That is the You want that. As a matter of fact, there are churches 10 times your size, that would want to be missional. They want what you have. And so, um, this is a beautiful thing that you are building, uh, continue to build that and be encouraged in the great work that God is doing through you. And so as we talk about disciple making again, teaching wrestling, uh, also depending, right. Depending on the gospel was one that we, that we covered, but I want to talk to you this morning also about defending the faith, defending the faith. um, And defending the faith, you might think we're going to enter into uh, an analysis of presuppositional apologetics or maybe evidentialism or maybe uh, uh, classical apologetics. No, that's not where I'm going. We don't have time for that seminar. Uh, Love to teach some of that. That's something that is uh, very uh, I'm passionate about. But one of the things that I enjoy about um, defending the faith. Is uh, there's one aspect called presuppositional apologetics, which simply means that they extend from the presupposition that the Bible is true, and then extends outward to defend the faith from there. And 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 one of the 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 home the hallmark passages of presuppositional uh, apologetics, right? So apologetics is just a fancy word for defending the faith. Presupposition just simply means something that is assumed to true be true before. I want to help you build a presupposition. I don't want you to become presuppositional uh, um, apologist. I just simply want you to grab hold of this beautiful presupposition that is found in Scripture that should serve as a great confidence builder in disciple making. Okay? And let's read this. It's found in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. This is the bedrock of presuppositional apologetics. But more than anything, because it's in the Bible and it's true, it should be something that we hold on to as firm and true, regardless of what kind of disciple making scenarios you find yourselves in. This should be the backbone of why we would defend the Christian faith. You ready? So the page turnings are starting to slow down. Romans chapter one, beginning with verse 18 for the wrath of God. Reveal from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God may is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use uh, for well, what is uh, what is against nature. Uh, What I want to zero in here on when we talk about defending the faith is that you would hold deeply in your heart several key truths that are found in this passage. There are three of them that I'll try to cover this morning. I'm going to talk about the suppressing of truth, the supplying of truth and the supplanting of truth. I believe that every human being on the face of the planet based on this passage is actively involved in some way in the suppressing of truth, the supplying of truth and also the supplanting of truth. So this is the backdrop against which we make disciples. Um, My first uh, uh, point is simply this. No one is ever born an atheist. You may grow up in a godless or an unrighteous, uh, if you want to call it country. You may grow up or be born into a gospel less context. But according to the scriptures, no one is born an atheist. This is a belief pattern that is developed over time, according to the testimony of this passage, because the things that may be known of God has been revealed to them and is in them. No one is born an atheist. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is born a Christian, but no one is born an atheist. And because of that, I want to walk through just these points, the suppressing of the truth. So how does a person become an atheist? Uh, the The supplying of truth. What is God doing about it? And the supplanting of truth. What are then some of the things that we need to work through in the process of disciple making? Um, One of the things that we when we when I think about the suppressing of truth, I'll be the first to go on record to say that I am a person who has suppressed the truth. I have been a, a truth suppressor. Um, some years ago, uh, I think I was probably late high school. I learned how to cut hair, buddy of mine, uh, we wanted fancy haircuts and we got tired of paying 20 and 12 and 30 bucks or whatever the amount of money was for them. Uh, many of the haircuts, uh, during, uh, that day looked exactly like the ones that you see during March Madness. Now, uh, those are kind of, and we were always drawing things in each other's heads and, and that kind of stuff. So we went out and bought a set of clippers and uh, we learned how to cut each other's hair. We practiced in the driveway. After a while we got pretty good and other people wanted us to cut their hair. And then uh, eventually my father asked me to cut his hair. And this is when I begin to suppress the truth. So for years, people are saying how much I look like my dad, how much I'm like him and how much our features are almost identical. We are the spitting image of one another. And I would agree with that. This sounds like a truth. That's my dad. No DNA test required. Me and this guy look alike. Uh, Our voices, our laughs, uh, certain aspects of us just look very much alike. But I began suppressing the truth one day as I was cutting his hair. And as I was cutting his hair, I started to see these emerging patterns of baldness. And his head looks exactly like mine. And while at the time I had a full head of hair, I began to notice that, wow, right where his hair is absolutely bald, these are areas where my hair is incredibly easy to cut when I notice this, which means that I am also beginning to show some thinning in these areas. Now, at this time, I was in my 20s, but I began suppressing the truth that I am not going to lose my hair. But. Regardless of how much I wanted to suppress that truth, every week it was reinforced to me. This is the pattern. This is your father. He is revealing to you certain truths about yourself. This is where you're going. It is both in you, it has been both revealed in me, in my DNA, it is both revealed to me that I am going to lose my hair. But in much the same regard, because we have... I see sons, I see sons being pa- uh, comforted even now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and the scientists will tell you that actually that that male pattern baldness actually comes from the mom. Have you heard this? They said that it's a it's a, a recessive gene from the mom. So I anyway. I've, and so I tried to also lean on that scientific argument to suppress the truth. I was like, my mom did not lose her hair. Therefore, I will not lose my hair. Um, but this idea of suppressing the truth, it is exactly that it is throughout our culture, throughout the creation. God is constantly providing ongoing, not just hints. And clues like you're playing this great game of charades. But God is speaking very clearly and candidly. One of the most clear and candid revelations of the fact that he exists is that he made us in his image. So in other words, it has been revealed in us. That's what the Bible says, that that the truth of God has been both revealed in them and it is revealed to us. One of my favorite Psalms is that of Psalm 19, where it talks about that the heavens declare the glory of God and the uh, of the the, the firmament, his handiwork. And that the 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 day is calling to the day and the night unto the night. And they've got this conversation that's constantly happening and it can be heard regardless of language and culture. So the Lord, both in the cosmos, has got a constant conversation that somebody who is eternal Powerful and personal and intelligent is out there. God is just having that conversation in the cosmos. And then he has encoded on the very DNA of mankind, regardless of how downright uh, committed we are to suppressing it. It's just there. It's just wonderfully there. And so we who are committed to making disciples, regardless of how hard a heart you come across, you need to know that that heart arrived there. Through the active, willful suppression of the truth, not the absence of truth, because throughout their life, whether it was by cutting their own father's hair or some other formula that God used, the truth that something or someone out there who is both eternal, powerful and personal has been revealed and is being revealed to that heart. I want you to share the gospel with that unbridled confidence that it is there. God did his job in, in, in revealing himself, but there is an active work to suppress the truth. Now, I want to say something to you. We use the term atheism to refer or atheist to refer to a person who has altogether taken a position. Now, I would even call it a religion, but we'll just say has altogether taken a position of rejecting that there is a God. But I want to say to you that all of us, when we live an ungodly life, a life that does not reflect our connection to godliness, we are practicing functional atheism. Because we are saying that I don't need God. I don't want God. And the reason that atheism is able to thrive is because it is all around us, not just as a classical position to be defended against in uh, apologetics, but because All acts of ungodliness are an affront to the fact that there is a God in heaven who is watching. And so we need to understand that that we all are co-contributors at times in our lives to atheism when we live a godless life. And this is why our testimony of consistency that there is a God who is watching is powerful. One of the great atheistic statements that ever came just driving home for me is I had a good friend of mine, and I have told this story in many different settings, but this is with a different twist. I had a good friend of mine who we grew up together in the faith, even had a shared, um, a shared uh, heritage and legacy in discipleship. One day after we were in our thirties, made a decision that he was no longer going to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He and I today have a friendship that is not the same as it was before because it is built primarily on reminiscing because we don't have any forward looking real fellowship. But we do get together from time to time because I still love this brother and we love uh, one another and we have just a lot of history together. And so I'm often uh, wanting to be in the room uh, when the Lord begins to work on his heart uh, or as the Lord's evidence working on his heart begins to come through. But here's why I want to share with you about this functional atheism. He said something most powerful and depressing to me one day uh, uh, on the heels of getting a divorce. He and his wife had already both who were believers at some point or were believers, period, and now have just abandoned the Lord uh, if they were authentic believers. Um, he said to me, Rod, he said, I'll be honest with you. We had been struggling for a while, but when we decided to leave the faith, it became very easy. Now, I technically can appreciate that. Yes, because there's certain Christian principles that would uh, preclude or prohibit you from pursuing that as an option. But he said something very powerful to me. And I said, what? And he said, um, he says, Rod, he's what it is. He says, once we stopped following Christ, there was no longer this third person in our marriage that we were trying to trying to please. Now, he was saying that as a I don't know how he meant that we were having a candid dialogue. I don't know if he was trying to be sarcastic. But that was a powerfully true statement that once they allowed themselves to live an atheistic marriage, this third person who was constantly pumping truth, even during the most challenging times, was removed from the equation and no longer felt inclined to listen to his voice. Or actually, because he was still there, but they had decided to suppress his voice. I want you to understand that all atheism is an active suppression. How many of us are prepared to admit that in our lowest moments of life, When we are going down a road that does not honor God, that the last thing we want to be reminded of is God's presence, that he's actively there, that he's actively looking, that he's actively watching. As a matter of fact, when we lose our way and we begin to walk in sin, how many of us are prepared to admit that we are actively ignoring or suppressing the reality that God is watching because the idea makes us uncomfortable? So all ungodliness and unrighteousness is functional atheism. So, you know exactly what it feels like in some respects to be an atheist, even if you have never adopted it as a lifestyle position. That kind of compassion or that kind of empathy should move us to say, even toward the most ardent atheist, I have some common footing because I get it. There are times in my life where I would feel so much more comfortable if I didn't think an all powerful moral lawgiver was looking over my shoulder. So you see, atheism is an escape. It is an escape from accountability. Atheism is the only, it is the, it is the highest and possible and most comfortable position that you can assume in a culture that worships personal autonomy. It is the ith degree of freedom that is not contextualized by a savior. You understand that when I become the definer of my own freedom, the final frontier is to get God out of the conversation. And so for the person who is living as a functional atheist or even as a positional atheist, what you are watching is a person in whose life the American dream has run amok, run off the rails, has run without accountability. And they desire that no one else tell them what they can do. That's all it is. Now, that sounds deep and it sounds complex, but it should be comforting to you because you can say, OK, regardless of all of the the ornaments that they've stacked on. Has anybody seen a junky Christmas tree like a Christmas tree just loaded down with stuff? And you are like, have no idea how they're going to get all that stuff off and get that back in the box. For many of us, that's how scary the atheist looks. And I'm talking about atheism because for often, often, many times, That's one of the most uncomfortable places to go when it comes to making disciples. So I want to preach to the extreme. But when I see a Christmas tree like that with a hundred ornaments and all that kind of stuff, I think about the atheist. I think about the person who has decorated their life in a in a in just a a hideous amount of arguments to cover and support their position. But at the baseline, you're still just a Christmas tree, man. That's it. So don't be afraid of all the ornamentation. That the atheist or the person who has decided to walk away from God or wants nothing to do with the conversation of the gospel, do not be thrown off by all the decorations, because that's all the fancy arguments are. They're just decoration to make them feel more like a Christmas tree, more like an atheist to make them feel more strong in their position. Why? Because the lifestyle of ungodliness is a lifestyle of active suppression of truth. And if you stop and listen to this, because the Bible tells us that God is constantly in the heavens, making an argument for himself in the night sky, in the day sky, and he's doing it cross country, he's doing it cross globally. He's constantly revealing to us on the inside some kind of, not the witness of the Holy Spirit, but just the fact that we were made in God's image. The fact that God is constantly revealing himself means that the person who wants to lie to themselves about the absence of God and the truthfulness and the need for a savior, they must constantly heap to themselves new arguments and new ideas and constantly create new distance between themselves and the church, constantly raise up new reasons why the church is not integrous, the church is not this. So when you you hear a person railing against the church, take heart. Because that is a person who is working overtime to suppress the reality that God is constantly popping into their life. That I exist, I exist, I see you, and you see me too. So take heart when you see the most ardent, the most ardent, the most stone-cold, rock-hard person pushing against the faith. Because know that all that push... Is because God is constantly doing his job in supplying a witness to himself that they are actively trying to suppress. Do not fear the fancy tongue atheist. No one is ever born an atheist, but here it is. No one is above atheism. Every aspect of sin is to pretend that there is no God. Consider great movies like Home Alone. Or when we desire to be home alone, that is a in a condition where no one is watching or the things that we're prepared to do when there are no cops in sight. This is I'm not saying that to get a speeding ticket is functional atheism. But I think what you get what I'm saying is that that there are classic moments in our culture that typify how we act differently. When we don't think a person that can hold us accountable is is, is watching. These, These are classic moments in our culture. And so here it is no one the bible tells us in in, in these verses listen to this for the wrath of god is revealed current present is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness which tells us this uh, we get another guarantee from this passage that no one can abate god's anger through their atheism in other words just because you reject that he exists doesn't mean that god stops revealing wrath now do you know what preceded this passage Paul's conversation that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek and that he is constantly in the gospel, revealing his righteousness from faith to faith. So just like God is working in the external cosmos and in the DNA of human beings, declaring that there is a personal and eternal God He, through the gospel, at the same time, is constantly revealing his own righteousness from faith to faith. So as often as the atheist or the person that lives an ungodly or an atheist, life, as often as they would heed to themselves argument, God is oftentimes adding to you new and fresh appreciation as we would live from faith to faith, because it is in that dynamic that his righteousness is being revealed. So if you want to become a master apologist, feel free. Read Robbie's books. Feel free. Read John Frame's work. Feel free. Go pick up a copy of uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til's Presuppositional Apologetics. Feel free. But let me answer this. At the same time as you are enriching your mind with the best evidentialist and historic arguments for the faith, the cosmological, the ontological, and the teleological argument, as often as you you get well versed in this, knock yourself out. But do not cease. To trust God from faith to faith, because it's this beautiful, wonderful, apologetic that the Lord imparts to the heart as we trust him. He is constantly confirming. Yep. You trusted me. And that's exactly who I am. And that's exactly how I work. You and I oftentimes need to as we're making disciples. We need all we need is an internal confidence that God is yet at work. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans tells us that the Lord has given us in chapter eight, the Holy Spirit, that he would by him. We cry out, Abba, Father. We have not received a spirit of bondage, but a spirit that that allows us to know God in an intimate way. And it says that the Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are his children. Because you can grow weary in disciple making as you see just this the tonnage of, 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 of just ignorance and wickedness in your world. And you need to be trusting God and living from faith to faith so that he is regularly confirming himself to you, emerging university student, current university professor and teacher. Do you understand? Some of you know this, that there is a creed amongst historians and scientists that we cannot answer the phenomenon of history by deferring to the supernatural. It is considered to be intellectual weakness to weave into the answer of how things happen in history and in science. It is it is considered to be uh, almost an anathema to defer to the divine because we are in a culture that says to defer to faith is to show a weakness intellectually toward pursuit of facts. And that is a false equivalency. Many of the great scientists of of yesteryear were people of faith who, through their faithful appreciation of what God had done in the cosmos, were making their great scientific discoveries. And so I want to encourage, again, the emerging student who's doing your thing in the public institutions that no longer respect your God. I want to encourage you. I want you to know that they, too, are operating with a presupposition that God cannot allow to to, to enter into the conversation. And you must have an equal resolve that he must enter into the conversation. Our world is actively involved in the suppression of truth. Be encouraged in the strength and beauty of the Word of God in this way. You understand that this text predates the contemporary advancement of moral relativism and naturalistic thought? Follow me carefully. Okay, so so the naturalists, the people that would say that there can be no theological solution. you understand that God gave us this word like like this was not written by some news uh, 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 station yesterday. This was not authored or penned by some seminary professor who has an axe to grind and a point to prove. This was given to us by God prior to this current moment. This is our God looking down the annals of history and recognizing that of all the things that he could say, that these are the things that he should say and that he should make sure that they be preserved for Branford, Right now. You understand? So this is the beautiful thing. Here it is. Two points of application for the three people on your paper. If anybody's wondering who these three people are, make sure you ask a friend from the previous sessions. We should witness with the confidence that even the most concrete heart can become as soft as clay. The Bible tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turneth in whichever way he will. I am. I am beautifully amazed by God's work over in the book of Exodus as he was working with Pharaoh. Allow he even told said, like, "Man, The reason that you're in your current role is that I might get maximum glory. The Lord is not losing control because people are losing faith. Second point of application, I would say to you is this. We should witness with the compassion that the most concrete heart grew that way over time again. No one was born an atheist. They may have been born irreligious, but no one was born an atheist. And so as you enter into a conversation and a person begins to puff out the chest and pull off these arguments, realize that that person is in a mode of active suppression and they're trying to add as much decoration as they can to make themselves feel confident in something that God has already revealed to not be so. You witness from a position of victory that God has already won the argument. Cornelius Van Teel, the godfather of presuppositional apologetics, said that we are all walking around. The unbeliever, are all walking around with masks and all the apologist is trying to do is to remove the various masks. That's it. And so verse 18, I'm going to walk through the, the other six now. That was verse 18. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But then verse 19 through 20 tells us something beautiful. And we've touched on it a bit already. It says in verse 19, because that which may be known, that what may be known of God is manifest in them. We talked about that, the imago dei, being made in God's image. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, so he's always been doing this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. One of the great reasons that I'm always panning the culture, looking for gospel analogies are not because I'm gifted and smart. It is because I believe this passage. I believe quite simply that God has taken material things. And if I stare at it, pray about it, look at it, whether it be because and I see my Lord Jesus doing it, too. This is not the Rod Newberry show. When we start talking about these gospel analogies with social justice and people being caught up in prison and all that stuff that we talked about yesterday. Like I saw Jesus go up to fruit trees and go, this is like the kingdom. I saw Jesus tell stories about people who were in total abject bankruptcy and got their possessions taken. And Jesus was like, and this is like the kingdom. I saw Jesus go, look at this. Oh, let me get something like lit. Here's a mustard seed. This is like the kingdom. So this whole idea of being able to see gospel analogies embedded within the creation, Jesus modeled it and the father made it so. Because he was the one who says that from the things that are made, that the invisible realities, not just of the gospel message, but the invisible realities of who he is are even discernible. This is a beautiful thing. But what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Witness with this confidence. It is manifest in them because we have been made in his image. In His image, I mean, literally, we, we are card carrying evidences for the existence of God, and to look at the deep internal beauty and, and wonder, like like the only reason that I wish I could be a doctor is so that I could have more arguments for the intricate beauty with which God built the system of the human body, so that I might have not a, not a greater position to to, to yes argue from because I love to argue. But to worship from, like, oh, God, I'd love to just peer into a microscope and know what I'm looking at and go, look at this. More evidence of your great hand and your handiwork within the creation. And I believe that to be so because the Bible says so. Right? I mean, this is just Sunday school ethics. It says the Bible tells me so that he has manifested the evidence of himself, his invisible attributes in us. And so it is with that faith and confidence that I'm prepared to share the gospel even with those whose IQ exceeds mine by triple digits. Because it's not an exercise of IQ. It is about uncovering. It is a it is a work of the construction worker, just scooping and excavating with the backhoe of God's word. Right. All of the junk that they have placed on top of the truth. I don't need to be smarter than you. I just need to be faithful and committed and willing to unearth all the stuff that you've stacked on top of your life to suppress the knowledge of God. Amen. Yes, that's a better. It's garbage. That's right. I should use that. That's it's beautiful. Yes, it's like going to the landfill. That's what it is. Not a construction site. I love that. Thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> yes. So there's a suppressing of truth, but then God is on his job, too. He is supplying truth. The Bible tells us that that God has manifested himself. And I'm going to use three alliterations for the note takers. Not only. So when we talk about the suppressing of truth, no one is born an atheist. No one is above atheism and no one can abate God's anger through being an atheist. We can't run from it. It's going to happen. There are just natural pinch points within the world that that you're going to naturally collide. And this is where our role as Christians become so key. When the pinch points occurred, you know what a pinch point is. Anybody know what a pinch point is? If you work inside of a manufacturing facility, uh, you know what a pinch point is. Or if you've got kids and you've ever shlo- cl- slammed their hands in the door, you know what a pinch point is. A pinch point is a place of natural risk that occurs. A machine is just moving and moving and moving, and if they don't have these guards over the conveyor, you can stick your hand there and naturally get pinched. That's a pinch point. In other words, the righteousness of God is such that it just methodically is just moving. And if you put your hand in the wrong place and if you're not respecting of that righteousness, you naturally get pinched. Not because God likes to hurt people. It's just a pinch point. And it is our role as believers to be there when the pinch points occur, because God has given you a guarantee that he is revealing wrath against ungodliness and against unrighteousness. And when the pinch points occur, when people find themselves in an irreconcilable position based on their current theology, that's when that's when you swoop in. Not with optimism. Right. Which is which is just trying to trust, uh, you know, life for a positive outcome. But with faith, which is trusting God. How? Regardless of outcome. Yeah. All right. So that's the suppressing of truth. But then here is God is supplying truth. According to verses 19 through 20, he manifests himself comprehensively. He manifests himself to us in the cosmos in us because uh, we are made in His image and also around us. God is constantly making arguments around us. There are things that happen in our world that are not palpable, that are not tolerable, except there be a God in heaven. Now, what Satan likes to do is to turn that argument on its head and say, well, how could there be a God and let these things happen? But God is working in the inverse. There are things in that that happen in the individual life that without him, they make no sense. In other words, there is there is a there is that because of the the the, the deep uh, brokenness of sin in our world, there are certain things that are that are paralyzing unless there is a hope that is above and beyond what this world can offer. There are many problems within our land that no government can solve, that no level of richness can solve, that no degree of science can solve. And the Lord has strategically placed those things there so that we might understand that we need a God who is eternal outside of time and all those things, who is uh, who is and who is personal and powerful. He does that on purpose. Therefore, God manifests himself comprehensively. He says the Bible tells us here that he's been doing this since the time of creation. Therefore, he is doing it constantly. And then it also says that uh, uh, he is doing it. He manifests himself. God is manifesting himself comprehensively. My note takers. Here it is one more time because I noted that I talk fast. God manifests himself comprehensively means it fully envelops our lives. He manifests himself constantly. He has been doing it since creation, nonstop. God manifests himself comprehensively. What he is doing can be understood. The Bible told us that from the material things, he is making evident the invisible things. And he's doing that for everybody, not just believers. And he's doing it all the time. That's right. Constantly, comprehensively, and comprehendably. Right. It can be understood that God is eternal, personal and powerful. So what do we do with this? I think about it when we share the gospel. uh, Consider it like this. What is God doing? God is bringing in Ziploc bags of unassembled Legos. Right. And just dumping them into the lives of people. And with the gospel, you're coming in with the top of the box and saying, this is what he's trying to say. Let me show you how to snap that together. That's what the gospel does. So with the gospel, you aren't creating anything. You're just helping people piece together these individual elements of life that folks otherwise don't know how to assemble. Now, check this out. Have you ever seen a child that does not want to build a thing that's on the front of the box? And what they make, they just go snap, 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 snap. snap, And they just enjoy snapping stuff together. So are we. We will take what God has built and and brought into this world and we will snap it together to whatever You know, tickles are fancy, but it may not be the thing that the that the pieces were designed for. So just because they snap together, we say that this is how things should come together. You understand? So 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 that's why the unbelieving populace has such great confidence in the route that they are taking, because the pieces are seeming to snap together, but they aren't building anything of a redemptive nature. They aren't building anything that is reflective of the glory of God. Making a mess. Amen, sister. No, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. They are making a mess. Because that's exactly what our children do, right? We come in and it's like we're walking in the Legos. Right? They're all over the place. We can't find key pieces. They won't let us throw them away. They want to keep them. Amen. Legos in the gospel. <laughs> um well, so we should see the gospel as pulling together what God has automatically poured out in the creation. We see the gospel as that. So you are not. Creating intellectual. Uh, 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 you're not trying to create this intellectual agreement through the gospel. You are simply piecing together all of these evidences that God has naturally poured on the table of every human life. And I also want you to, to enjoy the incredible work of the Holy Spirit and how he knits together the the visible and the invisible. You will never know. You will never know the vast beauty of times that you have stepped into someone's life. And said something of incredible impact that you were just trying to be obedient and they thought it was landmark because maybe you spoke to something that they had currently experienced in their life, something that they could not escape. I mean, doesn't he do it in the body? How many times has someone come alongside you and just sought to encourage you when you needed it the most? And it's like, well, what did someone send you a text? Like what's going on here? I mean, have you ever heard a message? And it was like, are you kidding me? Are we talking about that today? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the cleverness of the person. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit uses all of you that way. You're constantly a part of God's grand plan to help people piece together the Legos. And sometimes he just, he, he, he precludes our understanding of the great impact, because when we know we're having impact, then we try to overuse the paintbrush. You know, let me just put a little bit more on that, you know. <laughs> You know, I, says, I, I don't need you. I just need you to. I just need you to obey. Do your thing. Get out of the way. Let me handle the rest. Right? Verses 21 through 25. Man, we, yeah, we're getting there. 21 through 25. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The glory, the changed the glory of God the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible men. Uh, this is talking about this advancement toward idolatry. But I want you to see something else in here when it comes to the supplanting of truth. That is where people begin to swap and trade and interchange other things for truth. There are certain things that happen. The first thing that the scriptures would have us to know, it says that because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. You need to understand that the supplanting of truth manifests itself as warped worship. Let me to give you four precepts. They are in couplets, so they are not necessarily uh, alliterated. I am sorry, John. Um, but the manifestation of supplanted truth is this warped worship, futility of thought, darkness of heart and nonsense becoming the new norm. All right. So they have some kind of they're package, some kind of way. I'll give them to you again. Some of the evidences or many of the evidences of truth having been supplanted. So when God gives truth about himself, how is it being supplanted? How are the Legos being misconstrued this way? Through warped worship, futility of thought, the darkness of heart and the nonsense becoming the norm. Can anybody identify with any of those? Have you seen nonsense becoming norms? Right. This is this is. So here it is. It ought to disturb us. But at the same time, it should alert us. God, you're you're right. So if you're right on that particular verse, then you're right on the previous 19 verses. Uh, Have we seen the darkness of heart? Have we seen people relish and take pride and great joy in stuff that is dark? Like, how can that be pleasurable and fun? Well, it's all a trickle down of the futility of thought. Well, where does the futility of thought come from? Warped worship. Human beings are wired for worship we will celebrate and uphold the value of something in our lives all of us we all worship something and there is this intrinsic connection not a not a not a salvific not a redemptive connection but there is an intrinsic connection between the creator and his creature that when our worship is warped we are we we fall into a futility of thought but when we are redeemed and we worship the lord in spirit and in truth then the identity of our God becomes constantly reinforced. Our understanding of who God from faith to faith, he's continues to reveals himself. But it takes a writing of the relationship for that to happen. So we are all wired for worship. But warped worship is a manifestation of the fall? Therefore, right worship is a witnessing tool for the redeemed. I'll say it again. Very practically speaking, if warped worship is the evidence of the fall, then right worship is a witnessing tool for the redeemed. When people see you worshiping God, it has the same effect as people who they hear you praying to God. If you were not able to make some of our previous sessions, we talked about the practicality of unbelievers hearing us pray out loud and their hearts are pricked because they recognize that, wow, you mean the whoever this unseen person is, you're talking to him like he is your best friend or even your father. Your verbal prayers in front of those who do not know the Savior is actually a witnessing tool because people recognize that, oh, a personal relationship with the divine is possible. Worship has the same effect. Have no fear of having open air worship. Have no fear of playing worship music in your vehicle. Have no fear of people watching or seeing you worship. And I know sometimes that can be somewhere awkward. Who's looking at me? But worship is actually a witnessing tool because people say, oh, my goodness. Do you know why it's a witnessing tool? Because it, 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 it allows people to see that that's what human beings were made for, to adore their creator. So have no shame in worship. Have no shame in worship. But understand that because we are wired for worship. Just like the atheist has to do something with the truth and actively suppressing it. The atheist, the ungodly, the ungodly also has to do something with this innate desire to worship. So what do we do? We begin to worship the physical body. Let's go there. A worship, an inordinate worship of the physical body of the creature above the creation of a creature above the creator. Is kind of the seedbed for pornography. You ever wonder why that's a multi billion dollar industry? It's not because of the internet. It is because we are wired for worship. And what pornography is, is it is a worship of the creature's body over against the creator who made it. It is warped worship. It's warped. That's what porn is it is a warped worship. And so just as pervasive as it is in our culture, then that means that a, that's the that's the that's how many people are actively involved in trying to suppress the truth of God and what he made us for. What did God make the body for? It is the temple of God. No wonder Satan has made it a target. Because what was the telltale sign that God's covenant people had, had were, 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 were back on their heels and in the worst place in history? When the temple was destroyed. So what else would Satan want to do in the modern day covenant people's lives? Have the temple to be destroyed and to be misused. And so the Bible tells us that when we do things of a sexual nature that do not honor God in these temples, that we're actually sinning against the temple. Of course, so this is the target market of the adversary, because this is where God wants to hang out with me and fellowship. And so if this can be desecrated through all types of, of, of despicable things, it makes Satan happy. So this is why we should work overtime to protect our hearts, not because it's naughty alone, But because I want my worship before the Lord to be right and uninterrupted. I recognize that that issue that we just discussed is not just pervasive amongst the world. It also is creeping into the the, the borders of the church or beyond the borders. It saturates it in some context. But I just want to give you that little tip or that little That little uh, admonishment there of what's going on and why that is so pervasive. I mean, why not have people be obsessed with cucumber juice or, or, or 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 worship bananas? Why is sex such an idol in our culture? Because it is directly connected to the temple of God. And he would love to destroy that. And we have been made in the image of God and he would love to disrupt that. You understand that all sin is a. Target marketing campaign from Satan against the glory of God because He is angry that we have received His love and and, and we get God's glory. He He, he shares it with us. He makes us His children and not Him. You understand that that's what's going on. So then warped worship, futility of thought, darkness of heart, nonsense becoming the norm. And here's what we need to understand: that because God is actively Supplying wrath against these things. There are routine pinch points in life, as I already said, and that w- and for those who practice them. And so we need to be there to help people, to pray for them, to 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 piece together the Legos. I'll say this. Um, all of the above, warped worship, futility of thought, darkness of heart, nonsense becoming a norm. All of them create a vicious cycle of hopelessness, which we get to speak into with meekness. So the classic passage for defending the faith is this. And I close first Peter, chapter three, verses 15 through um, 18. But sanctify the Lord, your God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better that if the will of that, it is the will of God to suffer than to uh, than to do and to do good than for the doing of evil. Did you hear that? That the primary defense of the faith will come by those who inquire about the hope that is within us. In other words, people are going to be curious about the hope. Why? Because the life apart from God is a life marked by hopelessness, continuous, consistent cycles of hope. Lessness, and people may not even be able to put their finger on it but the world is saturated with hopelessness and that's why to be public about the active promises for which you are trusting god from his word and being able to trust and show that trust for god regardless of outcomes make you a signpost a road sign and a billboard for hope how are you so hopeful amid all of the defeat and the depression and the depravity that's going on how are you so hopeful and now You have your opportunity to share your apologetic. I trust you, if you will live robustly for Christ, many of the people that you want to share the gospel with will come to you because of the hope that is radiating out of your life. And this is why I I can't tell you if you want to be a disciple maker. Yes, you're going to have to open your mouth and articulate the gospel. But I'll tell you this. Would you just start by trusting him from faith to faith in your space? Don't wait until you develop all of the classical apologist arguments. Don't wait for any of that. Just live for him and he will give you audience with people who are tailor made for your kind of hope. The Bible says and I am uh, a huge fan of this passage. God have made all men of one blood to develop well on the face of the earth. And he has established their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Man, I walk the halls every day of my job, recognizing that, Lord, to the penny, you could have given me the same salary at a bajillion other companies. But this is the one you chose. This is the address you selected. This is the this is the position that you said. This is the segment in history. Why was I not born in the eighteen hundreds? God, I literally view my exact GPS position on the globe to be a part of the providence of God per Acts chapter seventeen verses twenty six and following. Like like I just believe that I'm like 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 right here like this moment like this. The reason that I preach so long is because I'm trying to squeeze all the juice out of the grape. Like Lord, this is it. You meant for me to be here. Am I done yet? <laughs> but 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 in every space, I don't care if you're a cashier, a security guard. I don't care if you're the guy who turns the flag that says slow or stop at a construction site. Like, I don't care what you, I don't care if you're a CEO, I don't care if you own your own company. The Lord, He says that He has established the boundaries of our habitation and the durations that we would occupy that space that we might seek Him because He be not far from every one of us and we'll find Him if we grope and feel for Him. These areas are your mission fields. Live robustly for them in Him knowing that He has given them to you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy. The glory of yourself manifest through your word. We thank you, oh God, for just the beauty of the body and the awesome work that you do in it. I thank you, oh God, for the wonderful adventure of disciple making. I pray, oh God, that you would put us in positions to boldly open our mouths and to share our faith, not only just with the three people that we thought about, but even people that we have random encounters with. I pray, O oh God, that you would transform uh, our hearts to know that the places where our foot tread have been prepared with the uh, our feet have been shod with the gospel of the preparation of peace, and that we would know, O oh God, that our offices, uh, our, our classrooms, our dorms, Lord God, and our neighborhoods are actual mission fields. And while our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our bridge partners our, our, our Lord God, the gas station attendants—they think they are just there doing their thing, but you, Lord God, have made them targets for your love, and you have been on the history of their lives, manifesting yourself in unique ways. And you're just asking us to obediently enter into the conversation and take advantage of these divine intersections. Lord God, make us bold to do so, and then allow us to experience. Please, Lord God, we beg you. Allow us to experience the beauty of souls coming to you so that we might bring them into a room, introduce them to each other. And through their shared testimony, they might be, Lord God, enthralled with the gospel, saturated with the gospel and compelled to go out and do the same thing that resulted in their own salvation. Grow your church on your terms through your people. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.